Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Everybody, welcome back to Connected. I am so excited for our guest today. Today, I am joined by Diana Cabrisis, who is the founder of Diana Cabrisis Consulting, and she is also a chief evangelist officer for companies all over the industry and in the world. We're going to talk about that more. Diana, thanks so much for joining Connected today. Kyle, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited for this conversation. Absolutely. We're excited too. So it wouldn't be a podcast episode if we didn't give you a chance to introduce yourself just in case we didn't do a great job of introducing you. So tell the world, tell the connected audience who Diana is. So Diana is a lot of things. Diana wears a lot of hats. But right now in this phase of my life, uh, yes, I did launch a company about six months ago. And I'm focused on being an outsourced chief evangelist to B2B wealth tech companies. So essentially, brands that are supporting financial advisors through awesome technology. Uh, I've just worked in the technology space most of my career supporting financial advisors. And over the years, Kyle, I, I had a lot of CEOs come up to me and say, hey, you know, how much can I pay you to do that, what you just did on stage for my company? And it was sort of that aha moment after CEO number five, number six, where I realized, like, I have something here that these companies really need. And you know, of course, diving in deeper, I think the bigger picture here, the takeaway is that companies, tech companies want to build better connections with advisors, and they know having great people at the forefront is the best way to do that. So right now I work with Wealthbox and Wealthtender, and I've got another client that I'm going to announce soon that I'm so excited about. So everything is going really well. I'm so happy to hear that. We're going to dive deeper into that to learn more about what that looks like for our audience. But to start off, this show is called Connected. So it's all about building better connections, whether that's through technology, like the companies you work with, or whether it's through people themselves. So Diana, I've known you for a little while, and I've known you long enough to know that you personally are great at connecting with others. And I've seen you build rapport almost instantly with people, whether it's out at conferences or things like that. So I think you're great at connecting with people. So what advice would you give to the audience on how to build great connections with others? Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I have to thank my family for it because I think about the way that I grew up and just how out there my family always was. Like no matter where we went, we were talking loud. We were talking to people. My mom was always striking up a conversation. Every morning we'd go through McDonald's drive through and, and everyone knew her. I can't say that I'm as outgoing or, or put myself out there as quickly as my family does, but they certainly inspired me. And what I've done over the years, Kyle, every conference I've gone to, right, you walk into the room and you've got two types of people. You've got people that are to themselves. They're just standing there. They're kind of looking around. Maybe they're a little shy. And then you have people who are striking up those conversations actively. And I realize 
that's the kind of person I want to be because people can really connect with that. You know, I'll show up and I'll just be honest and vulnerable. Like, man, I slept terrible in that hotel room last night. Did you? Because most people do, right? Or or like, you know, anything else that might have come up in that in that moment. And it doesn't have to be negative. It can be something positive. But maybe I'm going on stage and I'm a little afraid right now. And I'm kind of turning to the person next to me, quickly introducing myself and just sharing that vulnerability and people like that, right? They they can relate to that. So my advice is don't be afraid to strike up a conversation. Even if you're a shy person, you'd really be surprised with how many people are also in their head at events like that. And it just makes everyone more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you brought up your mom and your family. Tell us like just a little bit more about that because I know you've shared a bit about your mom in the past. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about like your heritage. Why do you think that your family was so outgoing? Is that just how they've always been? Or, you know, is it cultural? Like talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a combination of things. So definitely cultural. So my mom came from Cuba. Half of my whole family, I should say, is Cuban. And if you know anything about Cuban people, we're very loud. We're very energetic. We love to party. And so I got a lot of those qualities. But I think the other side of it was just the upbringing. So my mom, she went through a lot. You know, she had to raise her brothers and sisters. They left Cuba, came to Miami. She was the oldest of seven. And then she found my dad when she was 20, got married, had three babies. He passed away. And so she raised us all on her own. And if it weren't for her putting herself out there, asking for that discount or, you know, making me go up to the counter and and ask for that discount, then we couldn't have gotten by in certain situations. So it was both, you know, a blessing and a curse, I guess you could say, to grow up in that type of environment where there was a lot of anxiety around money. But it meant that if we didn't put ourselves out there, we might not have gotten the you know essential thing that we needed that day, whether it's, I don't know, food or clothing or whatnot. But I do like to talk about my mom. She actually just became a U.S. citizen uh, three yeah. days ago. I know. I'm so happy for her. And she she is a wild one, but she definitely inspires me a lot. That's amazing. What an incredible story. And shout out to all the single moms out there. Yes. I mean, what an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, but the, the great ones are some of the most amazing humans on the planet. Totally. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> well, okay. I want to go a little bit deeper on building connections. Okay. So you actually talked a second ago in the first thing about, you know, hey, I'm getting ready to go on stage. And I've seen you present more than a handful of times. And I think you're an incredible presenter, whether that's digitally on a, on a webinar or, or if it's in person, on stage at a conference, something like that. A lot of our audience are advisors looking to grow. And one of the, the traditional ways of growing is like doing seminars, for example, or maybe they're now doing digital workshops or presenting to a group of people who want to be educated, who want to learn about how to do this. And so I think my question for you is, okay, we've talked about how do you connect when you're maybe one-to-one. But how can the audience build great connections when presenting so that they can, you know, they can really lock in with their audience when doing that seminar, when doing that workshop digitally? Yeah, well, I like how you point out the one to one because that is definitely a different nature. It takes a different approach when you're on stage versus getting to have a one on one conversation. And this is something I've had to work on over time. So when I really started getting a lot into presenting, I realized I have a great ability to research a topic, you know, get as much information as possible and sort of like download that and spit it back out to my audience. And that is great. People want information, but people also 
want inspiration, right? It's not just about getting on stage and giving all this great info and all this data, but what about the story side? What about something personal about you? And so that that's actually something that has helped me really level up in my presenting is not just going on stage to give a bunch of great info that will help them, but tying those things into stories about me personally, about experiences that I've had. It's almost like a pause in a presentation where everyone can sort of sit back and breathe because they relate to that. They relate to your human stories and your human experience versus just giving them that data dump. So that's one of the biggest things I would say. The second thing I would add is I like to not just present to people and talk to them, but also I like to talk them through the presentation. So I'm a big fan of structure. So immediately I'm going to tell everyone, here's what I'm going to tell you. Okay, I'm going to tell them. And then at the end, I'm going to say, here's what I told you. And along the way, throughout each section, I will pause and I will say, this is what I just told you, right? And here's the key takeaway there. All right, let's move on to the next thing I'm going to tell you. So it, for visual learners, which we know 60% of people are visual learners, this sort of helps them paint that mental picture and they're going to connect with you a lot more as a speaker than they would if you would have just dumped all this information on them without any true structure. I love that because I think a lot about how us presenting information, we know what we're going to be talking about. So our brains are cued into the information. We've got it down cold. And maybe you've given this seminar 150 times, you know, or something like that. But you have to remember that these people hearing it, they're hearing it for the very first time, most likely. So you compartmentalizing, here's what I'm going to tell you, Here's what, I, you know, then you tell them and then here's what I told you really helps them frame and retain what you're what you're telling them. Because if the audience doesn't retain what you're telling them or they don't connect with the information, then what was the point of doing it in the first place? So I right. love that. I think the, the key takeaway there is be prepared, which is a great way of helping connect is don't do this on the fly. Don't just wing it. Have a structure or a process of the presentation. But then number three is have a, a way for the audience to better connect with yeah. what it is that you're saying, right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, thanks for sharing. Now, I want to transition into talking about our industry, our beloved industry a little bit. In your introduction, you talked about the company that you just launched. And I mean, I think this is changing the game for a lot of people in the industry itself. And so I think you've launched the first fractional chief evangelist offering in the industry. I don't know of any others. I think a lot of people would have the question, what exactly does an evangelist do? Yeah, that is the question of the hour ever since I launched six months ago. I've answered this question a lot and I'm glad because that's what I want, right? We're really creating a movement out of this. An evangelist is someone who's passionate about maybe it's a product or it's a brand or it's even a service. It doesn't have to be technology. There's, of course, religious roots to the term, but in the secular space, in technology especially, it's someone who is passionate about a product and they want to spread that passion to others and they want to share that information. They want to share what problem 
that product is solving for those people. So it's not necessarily like a traditional salesperson where you have, here's our product and here are all the beautiful features and here's the price and let's get the deal done. But rather it's more on a branding awareness level. Like this is a big problem you're facing and here's how you need to solve it. And oh, by the way, this tool here can really help you do that. So all in all, you can think of it as an ambassador, if you will, and someone who wants to inspire and motivate others to take action around that product. And whether that's booking a demo or simply just attending a webinar to learn more or just, you know, understanding that the product exists first and foremost. So again, very focused on brand awareness, bigger picture and what problem it solves. Yeah, I love that. So if I'm a, if I'm a company, is this is this in the, the marketing seat? Is this in the sales seat? Are you partnering with marketing and sales? Like how do people think about where an evangelist should exist inside of their org chart at their company? I'm so glad you asked me this question because the beauty of the role of the chief evangelist is that you really get to choose where you want that person to operate under. And I, I don't like to use that word under, but really cooperate with your sales team or with your marketing team or with your partnerships team. If you create like a big X, right, and you've got sales you've got marketing, you've got your partnerships team, and then you even have your customer success team. I'd say your chief evangelist sits right in the middle of that. I've seen some tech companies that have hired a chief evangelist or you know promoted someone to that role, and they're fully on the sales team. And their job is to work solely with sales and go out and storytell and help drive awareness and drive pipeline. But I've also seen companies where their evangelist is on the partnerships team, and they're just dedicated to delivering unique, exclusive content through all of their different partner channels which does work really well in our industry. Cause as you know, Kyle, I mean, you can have a great tech product, but if you don't have it approved through different channels, then yeah. where are you selling your product into? Yeah. 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 hundred percent. I mean, I think those are some of the unique challenges in our industry is that it is inherently B to B to C and B to B to C companies create very inherent distribution challenges. And so I think, that combination of, okay, we have to have the marketing, the content being created, telling the product marketing story, helping people understand what it is that this product does. You have to have the boots on the ground, people actually selling the product, doing that hand-to-hand -hand combat with people who are going to potentially buy this from you. But at the same token, you have to have somebody who's just telling the the first, you know, the, the business in this scenario about why they should be thinking about this for the C in this scenario. And I think that's where evangelism is really, really great. And I'll just tell the quick story of, I think Aaron Klein is one of the better evangelists in the industries for this. And obviously a CEO at Nitrogen, formerly Riskalyze, and I watched him do this in a really magnificent way, but not everybody is Aaron Klein, right, Diana? So I'm sure there's a lot of people who have built incredible products and have incredible companies, but just aren't comfortable constantly being out there evangelizing the brand, they may feel comfortable doing the hand-to-hand -hand sales combat with people. Hey, you get me in the room with somebody and I'm really confident that I can transfer the belief of this product to those people, or they might be great at writing product marketing copy, but they, they may not be great at just getting people to be aware of who they are. And so is that really where this, this offering came from? Absolutely. You're spot on. And, you know, going back to those examples of tech CEOs coming up to me, they would also admit in some cases, that's just not my thing. You know, I don't have that flair. I don't have that personality. I'm really good with the technology, especially like founders who were previously 
chief technology officers, right? There's there's a certain personality, not to everyone, but there is. And they would rather be behind the scenes than in front. But with all this competition, with all this, you know, evolvement, evolution in the technology space, I think it's more important than ever for tech companies to ask themselves, do we have those boots on the ground? And I think another benefit to having that is you're not just thinking, okay, this is what we should put out and this is what people want. But now you've got someone coming back and saying, well, we should tweak this here and there because this is what I'm hearing. So it creates this feedback loop. It just benefits everyone. Yeah, I love that. All right, so let's let's pivot this just a little bit. At a certain portion of your career, you spent a lot of time helping people with M&A and succession planning. I mean, that's been a trend in the industry for a long time, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. Consolidation is happening. RIAs are buying other RIAs. They're getting bigger, all of this stuff. I have a couple questions about this, but but the first one I have is, what does it take for someone to, to execute a successful succession plan as an advisor? Because I think everybody's talking about this. Everybody wants to have a succession plan, but it's, it's easy to put one on paper. I think it's hard to actually roll one out in a meaningful way. So what can you share with, with the listeners about how to execute a successful succession plan? That's tough to say. Successful <laughs> succession plan uh, for those who are thinking about it. Yeah, it is hard. So there's a few different ways we could take this conversation. I think number one, you have to start early. A lot of advisors who will put it off. And in fact, I can't tell you how many advisors I would call and they'd say, I'm not retiring. I don't want a successor. I'm not interested, which is really cool. I'm like, wow, you found something you want to do to the day you die. It's running itself for you. Awesome. However, times are changing really quickly and that might not really sustain as long as they think it would. So give yourself enough time, really realize it is a really important thing to have in place. Even if you don't really ever want to make a full exit, your clients will be better off if there's some sort of plan in place. But something I always used to tell my advisors, and I, I worked with a lot of older advisors at this in this period of my career, and I miss them all so, so much. Something I used to say all the time was approach succession planning and M&A as you would approach a new relationship on a romantic level. And I know this sounds crazy, but just like thinking about it, if you truly want to find that good fit, you've got to dig deep, right? So you have to ask them, what are their investing preferences and and what part of the country do they want you to run the business out of in the future and 10 years from now? Uh, what does their business plan look like overall? You're really getting deep. I, I think the problem is looking at it too much as a business transaction. It is a business transaction, but it's a very personal transaction as well. And so getting deep and asking those right questions, it's just going to help you find that better fit. There's been a lot of deals that have fallen apart at the 11th hour because there wasn't certain things covered. Like, well, I thought you were moving to my state and I, you know, I'm not willing to have my clients work with an advisor in another state. Well, we've been talking for two years and this is now coming up and the whole thing falls apart. So compatibility and over communication are key to any successful succession plan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's 
you'd have a line very deep of firms that would be willing to buy your firm. But why is this the one that you are going to sell to? I think is the, right. is the great question. And, and you should be able to answer all of those things that you were just talking about. I want to talk a little bit more about M&A and succession planning, but I'm going to, I'm going to tie that back to a couple of other questions I have later. So M&A succession is a trend, obviously, that's huge in the space, but there's a lot of other things going on in the, the fintech and wealth management space as a whole. So you see a lot of this. You're talking to lots of sort of, I would say, newer, innovative companies that are looking to get their name out there and brand awareness. Yeah. You've also spent a lot of time in the industry. Just get out your crystal ball. Yeah. Where do you see our industry going a little bit? You want my honest answer? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I want to be optimistic. However, I think with what's happening with this great wealth transfer. You know, as we all know, lots of assets are transferring over. Lots of small businesses are gonna change hands in the next 20 years. And it's really already starting to happen now. I think we're gonna see a big cleanup in this industry. I think we're gonna see firms and even individual advisors who aren't really meeting the needs of millennials and Gen Z likely fall behind. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, and this is a very today example, but it is also a very future example, online reviews. We know, I know, me, my people, the next gen, right? We all value online reviews. Most people are looking at reviews for almost anything that we do in this day and age. Almost any service or product we decide to buy, one of the first things that we're looking at are reviews. And I see what's happening. I see sort of the younger generation of advisors are starting to prioritize that. They get it. They know that digital buying journey, you better meet consumers where they are. This is going to be the differentiator for me to get that call versus the veteran advisor down the street. But the veteran advisors down the street are not necessarily understanding that digital buying journey and they're not prioritizing reviews and they're very set in their ways and continuing to grow the way they have. And I'm not saying they won't. I think, you know, there's a lot of great ways to grow traditionally. But if you're thinking about that next generation of wealth, we all know we live on the internet. We grew up on the internet. We grew up on the computer. You've got to be meeting us there. I also think we'll see a lot more tech-enabled companies, which, again, this is happening now, but into the future. And like with what Mile Marker is doing, right, those integrated tech companies, those integrated tech stacks, but also education. So this next gen, they want to be co-creators of their own plan. They don't want to hire someone and then be totally blinded to the process and just be told the what. They want the how, they want the why. So I think the best advisors that are going to do it right, that are going to be strong in this you know, future industry that we have, they're going to be focused on not just giving a client a plan, but really co-creating through that whole process. Oh, it's good. I like it. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the reviews thing, because yeah. I'm sure this comes up a lot. I, I think my question around this is, how do reviews play when the product or the service is sort of a not, not as transactional? Okay, we want to find a, a great electrician because something's going on in our house. Like, well, yes, I want to know that they're going to be responsive, that they're going to show up on time, all of that. But at the end of the day, I mean, this person's coming. They're like changing something on my electrical side. And then we're, we're heading, yeah. you know, we're heading out. Do people use reviews for finding CPAs or things like that where it's like, hey, I'm looking for something that's going to be a long-term relationship this is something that, you know, to your last point, I'm, I'm kind of like dating them to see if this is, you know, a longer term solution. So I guess that's something I've always wondered, not just for financial advisors, but service professionals as a whole. Yeah. You know, how does a review work with that versus like, oh, I just need a service, 
you know, right now to be performed and I need to know which is the best way to do it? Yeah. So I think the best way to answer this is thinking about the way that we make decisions. No matter if we're looking at someone for the long run or we're looking at just a quick service to get done, the way that we make decisions is based on two things. It's based on facts. So in an advisor's case, you know, how many years have they been in business and what credentials do they have? And then it's also based on emotion. So word of mouth, referrals, that is that is an emotional experience. My friend just vouched for this advisor. Now I am way more inclined to go talk to this advisor. So it's like a decision tree split into those two things. When you can satisfy both, it's going to help them reach that decision much faster. In the case of reviews, that is the emotional side. It's what other people are saying. It's the storytelling, but other people are doing it for you through their review. And so in my opinion, that's the reason why they're so important. Again, doesn't matter if it's transactional or if it's long-term, that decision has to be made and there's gonna be two main factors to help make it. And one of those is gonna rely heavily on reviews. And there's data, right? We're seeing more and more data. There's a lot more studies and surveys going on with reviews in particular to financial services. And the last one that came out, I think it was in January, it was by Bright Local Survey. And they found 81% of consumers said, yes, reviews online are an important part of my decision-making process when thinking about hiring in financial services. So that tells us tides are definitely changing there. And then to, to go one step further on that, you know, I think it's pretty traditional in this industry that client retention is very high, right? Because a lot of times, you know, people just either wouldn't change advisors or anything like that. Do you think in line with reviews and all of this sort of stuff that people will change advisors more often? So maybe it's not as big of a, I'm making a decision that I'm going to be with this person for the next 20, 30, 50 years, or, you know, maybe it's like, oh, I'm going to try them out and see how it goes. And if it, you know, the reviews were good and if they're not great, I'll just switch. Do you think that's potentially a trend coming as well? It could be, it could be that one. I'm like a little uncertain on answering specifically, but I think it very well could be. I mean, you're always reselling your value. It doesn't matter if you're an advisor, if you're a business owner, whatever it is that you do, you're a plumber, right? You're always having to resell your value, especially if it's an ongoing thing. So imagine an advisor acquires a client, they saw a great review, they, they join forces, but six months, 12 months, two years down the line, they're not doing as much or they're not, you know, reminding that client of their value and why that they should be, you know, why they're their advisor in the first place. And they're going online, they're looking at other reviews and they're like, oh man, this advisor looks really good. They've got way more great reviews. I could see a potential there of somebody jumping ship. I think to answer your question more directly, I think it comes all down to advisors constantly reselling their value. And I don't mean a pitch but I mean, constantly adding value and reminding them how grateful you are that they work with you. And I've personally seen examples here of advisors doing a great job up front, and then they just continue to drop off more and more each year. And then, you know, the, the client says, hey, I'm sorry, but I think I want to go work with a different advisor. You just really haven't been cutting it for me. And they just let them off so quickly. There was like no resell at that point. Yeah, it it, uh, it boggles me for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's good. I think one of the trends we're seeing at MileMarker a lot in line with what you're talking about is, hey, how can I, number one, showcase my value almost on a timeline-related fashion of here's the value that I've provided and also can I quantify what my advice has meant to this client over time? Because I also do think 
one of the challenges financial advisors face all the time is a what have you done for me lately mentality. It's like, you know, you might have helped this client two years ago make a decision that saved them six figures in taxes. But now all of a sudden it's like, well, what what have you done for me lately? And it's like, well, You know, there hasn't been too much to do lately. I'm here for you whenever you need it. But look at what the value of our relationship has meant while we've been working together. And I think those are great tools to to your point of how are you constantly reminding clients of your value so they don't even go looking at reviews for should I find another advisor in the first place? A hundred percent. All right, let's talk about growth a little bit. As I think about reminding people of value, you've had incredible experience when you were at Snappy Kraken, obviously as you're building your own company now and and a couple of other different things. So I I wanna talk about growth. Coming back to the M&A thing, I said I would come back to this. You talked a little bit about brand awareness. This is the beauty of being an evangelist. So I'm gonna try and tie all these things together. So the reason why we evangelize is because we wanna create great brand awareness. We're seeing these trends of firms buying more and more firms, but you also said, hey, we we wanna treat this like, you know, entering a romantic relationship. I think with financial advice, it's very difficult to be differentiated from a brand standpoint. We're sort of all serving clients. We're all sort of doing planning. You know, we all have somewhat the same ingredients. What recipes are we putting together to stand out? So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. I think Snappy Kraken is one of the coolest brands in the entire space, and they've invested heavily in brand. So you got to be front and center for that. You're doing this amazing brand work as a chief evangelist for people that you work with. And there's a lot of advisory firms out there trying to figure out how do we build a brand that stands out? So I think there are few people as well equipped to answer this question as Diana. And so I'd love to hear you riff on this a little bit. I'm a financial advisor. I'm growing okay. I'd like to maybe acquire some firms. How the heck do I stand out so that people want to pick me to be the place that they sell their firm to? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love all of this. And I agree. Snappy Kraken has an amazing brand. Uh, I've just learned so much through that experience and I'm always inspired by them. But to go back to your point, you said something earlier that is just such a great segue into my answer. So it's harder and harder for financial services firms to differentiate themselves in, in the lens of financial services, right? Which is exactly why these financial services firms need to go outside of that financial bubble to be able to figure out, okay, what makes us different besides just the work that we do? For example, some uh, RIA firms now, they have like their, their pets are on their website, right? And like, we've got a chief marketing officer, which just makes me laugh so hard. But like, they're finding ways to just show more of their personality. They're incorporating more design into their work. And I think, you know, just going back to the the question, they invest in their marketing. They heavily invest in marketing and creativity. In fact, they're taking at least 20% of their revenue and they're putting it back into the business. They're doing seminars, they're doing webinars, they're sending out newsletters that are very niche down specific. So, you know, I'm a consultant, right? There's some really awesome advisory firms out there and solo advisors creating newsletters just for consultants on taxes, on cash flow. They're getting very, very specific about who they're talking to. And maybe it's more than one person, but they've got these sort of like avatars in their marketing and they're putting out content to reach that. They're asking their clients, how often do you want to hear from me? Through which channels do you want to hear from me, right? Marketing is not just 
sales emails and newsletters and content. Marketing is also experience and touch points. And, you know, when I walk into your office, how does it smell? Or are you serving me up a coffee the way I like to take my coffee? They're also, I would say, involved in their community. And of course, because I cannot not mention this, but they're leaning on clean, modern technology. I just interviewed a CEO of an RIA here in Denver where I live. They grew from three advisors to now a team of 30 in just a couple years. And we talked all about how them using Wealthbox, who, yes, is one of my partners, but them using Wealthbox, a clean, modern technology, has helped them scale everything that surrounds their customer from the moment they reach out as a prospect to the moment they become a client to year one, year two. It's all baked into the technology and then the people sort of surround that and they get to deliver on that. So it's all about experience and great marketing. I love it. I love it. And then to follow up on that, I think there's sort of this notion that if you are a, it's not just advisors, but I don't, I don't think of a lot of fun brands around CPAs, for example, or not a lot of fun brands around asset management companies. And I think there's always been this old school belief that it's like, if it's something that's really important, we can't have fun with the brand. We need people to know that we're serious and we're not going to be flippant with the things that are charged of us and all of that sort of stuff. But you know, a lot of people want differentiation there. So uh, what do you say to that? Do you think that companies that are handling very serious and, and important matters can still have fun brands and inject some energy and life into those brands? Or should they always just sort of be a, a very stoic uh, approach to the way that they put themselves out to customers? So uh, it's an interesting question, because honestly, I look at some of the more serious brands and, you know, I, I have this appreciation for their brand, you know, and, and the professional look they want to uphold. I think that's cool. I think it takes a lot of work. But at the same time, I look at other brands who are having more fun, who use more warm colors in their branding palette, whose logos maybe are animated or, you know, they're not so finance. And I see them thriving just as much. And I think it really, it comes down to who. It comes down to like, who are you and what kind of firm do you want to run? And I'm not, I'm not stereotyping here, but if you're from Manhattan and you want to wear that hat and you want to be really, really professional and skyscraper and, and just everything so professional, go for it. If that's what you want, go for it. I personally don't want to be that person, right? I want to be the fun firm that's still growing and, and serving the masses and having fun in the process. That's the type of person that I am. So I think it really depends who you are. But to your your question around, you know, can these more serious firms have fun? I do think that they can. Uh, I think it's going to take their people, right? If their their brand palette in general and their colors and their logo is very serious, well, what about their people? Can they come in and have a little bit more fun and and host events and be more entertaining? Maybe so. And maybe that will help drive that brand growth. And that's really the ultimate factor is their people. But we will we will see. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So I want to move into a section that we call Beyond the Bio, which is, you know, hey, there's lots of opportunities to understand what Diana does for work. And I love that about this industry. But I also am trying to take some time in this podcast to help the industry get to know the person behind the work. So how can we learn a little bit more and help people connect with Diana beyond just what you do on a, on a regular basis? So 
when I was doing some research for this podcast, I discovered something pretty cool. I discovered that you used to teach English abroad in multiple different places. And I think, you know, what more fundamental way to connect with people beyond our language and the words that we use and how to be able to connect with someone if you don't speak the same language. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about that experience of teaching English abroad and, uh, and how that helped you better connect with others. Yeah, teaching English as a second language abroad was one of the best things that I could have ever done, especially in my early 20s. So when all of my friends, you know, we graduated college, they were all getting jobs. I just, I realized I'm not ready. Like I sold all my stuff. I moved to Spain. I just got a job teaching English under the table. Frankly, it was enough euros to pay my rent and get me around. But what I learned was first, I met a lot of adults whose English is not their first language. And I just had such a respect for them. But in the process of teaching them, there were times where, you know, a word wasn't translating or neither one of us knew how to say the word in our in our own respective languages. And so we'd start drawing or we'd use hands and get really expressive or pull out our phones. So it starts to teach you how to communicate in other ways. Um, it also, you know, brought about just this, uh, I don't know, humbleness inside of me, right? And especially when I was trying to get better at my business Spanish, which is not easy, just being vulnerable and, hey, none of us are perfect. And if we're trying to learn a new language, it is very humbling. So I think one of the best experiences ever, if I could do it again, I would. I will also just add the factor of travel there, also one of the best things ever. And I encourage everyone listening to this, go travel. I'll never forget this story. I, I had just gotten to Prague. You know, I had a only had a backpack. I had a backpack. I wore the same pair of Converse's for three months. I got to Prague and I couldn't figure out how to buy a tram ticket. And you had to have one. They were very strict and I didn't want to get caught. I didn't want to be that American getting on the tram for free. And this guy comes up to me and I'm, I'm trying to ask him and he cannot speak a lick of English. I cannot speak Czech. And we're just like doing this in the street with our hands. He's like pointing like over there, you know, like not saying that, but pointing. And I'm like, and finally he just like walks me over to this place and I go inside and like, ah, it's just an experience I will never forget. I think teaching English, it just helped me better connect with people, even when you can't even speak the language with each other. Yeah. Oh, man, absolutely. I think that comes back to kind of the beginning of you were vulnerable to go ask somebody for help on something that you didn't know how to do. And then yep. they were they were humble enough to be willing to to take the time to connect with you. And they even walked you over to where you needed to be. And I yep. think for a lot of us in ways to connect with people, it's just like, how do we come to their level? How do we be vulnerable and how do we help them get to where they want to go rather than just tell them where they where they want to go? So that's that's really, really cool. So you, you mentioned Barcelona, you mentioned Prague. I think you did this in China, too. Is that right? So the China, I wish I did that in person. That one was fully virtual, okay. but I had uh, I had a group of you know kids in Beijing that for two years every week we met, and it eventually became their family would get on with me. It was you know Chinese New Year, they'd take me around the whole house and show me their aunts and their uncles, and everyone's waving. Uh, it so was cool. it was too sweet. I loved it a lot. That's awesome. You know? Well, and this just kind of makes me think as I kind of start to wrap this up. But one thing when I think about Diana, your brand uh, with me is that you are really comfortable with new experiences and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. I'm just curious. Have you always been like that? Is that just naturally who you are? Did you have to kind of is that a learned skill that you could teach other people how to learn? I think it was learned because 
in my early years, I had a lot of attachment to things, to my friends, to my boyfriends, to my mom. Uh, I slept with my mom for a long time growing up, believe it or not. That's something I've never admitted on a, on a podcast or any public interview. I had attachment, but I think I was just really pushed and motivated to get out of the small town I grew up in. I moved to Atlanta. And I think from there, it was really when I started to learn, like, this is such a new experience, it's such a new world. And then I almost became addicted. And sometimes I think maybe I over-obsess with new information and new experiences, but I just have like this bug now to go to new places. I am not tied down to anything. I tell myself all the time, if something's to happen and I have to leave Denver, I have to do this, or I have to shut down my business, it is what it is, right? Like it's just the way life goes. It's cyclical, it's seasonal. And so I think I had to learn it over time. I do, but uh, I my, my advice back to anyone listening here is like, just don't be afraid. Stop, you know, getting attached to things. We're not meant to be, we're meant to fly. We're like butterflies. We're meant to fly and, and cocoon and do it all over again. Incredible. All right. My last question before you, before we wrap up, we've talked about a bunch of different stuff here today. We've talked about being able to connect with people. We've talked about the future of the industry. We've talked about how to build great brands. But for the advisor listening to this that wants to supercharge their growth, what is your number one tip for how a financial advisory firm can supercharge their growth? Hmm. Ooh, okay. Huh. Well, there, there's so many tips here, but I think I'm going to start with- How to pick one. I'm, I know. I'm going to start with the foundational tip because from here, you can build on and do lots of other things. But my number one tip right now, and I know this has probably been said a bunch, but it truly is to niche down, to find a very specific subset of people that you can serve. Even if you can serve a lot more people, it doesn't mean you're not going to attract them if you niche down, but find a very specific subset of people that you study, that you understand how they operate, what they do for a living and what they're doing on the side in their personal life, what pain points they have, what challenges, aspirations that they have in their life and start to build all of your content around those people. Get uber specific in everything that you put out for them. Every headline, every subject line needs to mention them specifically. From there, I think you're gonna see a lot of great growth really quickly. I love it. Thank you so much, Diana. I've really loved having you on the show today. It's been a pleasure having this conversation. It flew by, honestly. So yeah. we may have to have you on again. There's so much more we could talk about. We'll have to do... We'll have to do a revamp. But uh, before we wrap up, anything you want to shout out uh, here on the show to the audience? Uh, you know, because I'm feeling in the moment with this right now, I'm going to shout out Orange Theory Fitness. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Kyle. I have. Okay. I have become obsessed. And like I said a moment ago, sometimes I get obsessed with new things. But I've been doing it for two months. And I grew up, I, I was a gymnast for many years growing up. And I haven't done that since I was like 16 and yeah. Orange Theory has like brought that inner gymnast back out. Like I'm just, I love the structure. I love the competitive nature of it. And it's changed my life. So I'm going to be one of those people right now and say, if you're listening to this, if you have an Orange Theory, go get a free class. It truly changed my life. I know this has nothing to do with finance or evangelism, but I guess this is me evangelizing Orange Theory. <laughs> I love it. Again, we're trying to connect with people outside of the show. So shout yeah. out to Orange Theory. If you've never done it, go check it out. And last question that we always ask, Diana, the show is called Connected. Where can the listeners connect with you? 
Yeah, so I'm online. I've got LinkedIn, Twitter. LinkedIn, I'm posting lots of education for financial advisors. Twitter, same, but a little bit more personal from time to time. It's sort of my personal outlet. Both handles are my first and last name, Diana Cabrises. I always spell out that last name. It's cab, like a taxi cab, rice, like what you eat. And then you throw an S at the end, which I know is ridiculous, but it is what it is. Uh, my website, dianacabrises.com. If you're a tech founder or operator, CEO, and you're you know interested in learning more about the role of the chief evangelist, I put out a really great newsletter. You can subscribe right on my website where I'm always talking about the role of the chief evangelist. I'm on YouTube. You're going to start to see a lot more of me on YouTube. I'm setting up my home office studio next week. I'm so excited. Uh, so please connect with me. I love connecting with advisors, with tech owners and operators, whether you're in this industry or you're outside of it. I'd love to connect. Fantastic. I love it. Lots of places to connect with Diane, everybody. We'll put those in the show notes to make it easy on you. But I'm really glad she still spelled out her last name because that was amazing. Um, Diana, thanks so much for joining the show today. It was really a pleasure to have you. Kyle, thank you so much. This is an awesome podcast. I'm excited to tune into other episodes as well. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.